Sometimes when you're sitting around, you might end up getting a good case of the chuckles. You ever have the chuckles every now and then? Now, I'm not talking about chuckles candy. Some of you remember when you were a kid, you went down to the store and you got chuckles candy. Uh, I'm not talking about chuckles candy. Nor am I talking about some of the chuckles that you might have bought for your kids or your grandkids this Christmas. I'm not talking about the chuckles crazy bouncing motion activated ball. I'm not talking about the chuckles buddies rolling laughing motion activated spotted dog. I'm not talking about the Chuckles the Hedgehog Beanie Baby. I'm not talking about Chuckles the Clown. not talking about any of those Chuckles. When I ask if you have had the Chuckles, I'm talking about the real Chuckles. The Chuckles where you just laugh and you laugh and you laugh and you have a hard time stopping laughing. You know, at the very end, the last section of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, we have this interesting scene where we finally have Scrooge coming to his senses, so to speak. And the first thing he does is he, he tries to do something nice. He tries to, to go and he gets a young boy to come and, and go get the prize turkey from down at the poultry store. And he sends the prize turkey to the house of his faithful employee, Bob Cratchit. Now, we may not think the prize turkey sounds like anything that we would be excited about. I mean, getting a, a prize turkey at the door may not get your eyebrows up. But if we were to make a connection with the money then that would have been for a turkey to today, it would be like somebody showing up at your door and giving you $75 cash or maybe $75 worth of bacon. Now, of course, the bacon would be more valuable than the cash, but you, you get the idea. So we have Scrooge coming to his senses, doing something nice, something well out of the ordinary, and how does he respond after his act of kindness? This is what Charles Dickens writes. The chuckle with which he said this and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again and he chuckled till he cried. That's a lot of chuckling. <laughs> so why was Scrooge chuckling till he actually cried? Well, for the first time in his life, he realized that it wasn't wrong that he was rich. What was wrong was what he was doing with his riches. You see, he was selfishly keeping his money just for him. He was not sharing his wealth with anyone. And in this moment, and on that Christmas, Scrooge finally had a shift. And for the first time, he used his money in a way that was extremely kind. And he made sure that the Cratchit family had a winner, winner, turkey dinner. He made sure their Christmas was nice. One day, Jesus was teaching a huge crowd of people. His story that day was an interesting story. It was a story, really, we could say it was the, the first time a Scrooge story had ever been told. But this Ebenezer was not a moneylender. This Ebenezer was a farmer and a very, very rich farmer. Listen to Jesus' story beginning in Luke 12, verse 16. 
And Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So we have a farmer so rich that he's having to build bigger barns for his crops. He's having to to build bigger banks for all of his money. Now, if we had been sitting there that day listening to Jesus tell this story, we would probably think, hey, this guy is a good businessman. He's been wise. He's been great with his money. We might expect to find him in the Fortune 500 list. We might expect him to win the annual Chamber of Commerce Businessman of the Year trophy. But Jesus was not pulling out the trophy polish. We have a a rich farmer, a rich farmer who seems to have everything you could possibly want or desire. But there is a problem with his wealth. There's a problem with what he has. And the problem that Jesus says, he wraps up with one word. He calls him a fool. And that seems a little bit strange to us, but Jesus is clear. You see, he was a fool because he was keeping all of his money for himself. Just like Scrooge, he wasn't using his money to serve other people. He was keeping all his money so we'd have a rich, safe, comfortable life. Now, you may be thinking, hey, what's wrong with that? (laughs) What's wrong with a, a rich, safe, comfortable life? Why is that such a problem? Well, the problem that can come up with a rich, safe, comfortable life is death. <laughs> see, that's, that's the problem that Jesus is, is pointing out here. You see, just when the, the rich farmer thought that he was going to kick back and film his episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, he finds out that he is going to die. And all the stuff that he has, everything that he's accumulated, all of a sudden it's not going to be able to be his anymore. And he's about to leave earth poorer than the poorest homeless man downtown in Columbia. And Jesus points this out. But see, the story is not just about a rich farmer way back in the day. This story is about me. And this story is about you. Listen how Jesus ends his parable. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus is talking about being rich. He does not say that being rich is bad. Being rich with money is not bad. What he's saying is being rich without God is bad. In fact, it's foolish. In fact, it's fatal. On another day, Jesus said this when he was teaching. Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So what we really gain if if you have all of the riches of this life, everything that you could possibly have here, what would be the gain? Jesus says there would be no gain if that was all you had. 
He says, actually, if that was all you had, you would lose your soul. But what does it mean to lose your soul? Well, one way of putting that is this, that when you wake up on the other side of death, there would be no peace, there would be no comfort, there would be no satisfaction. That's one way of looking at what it means to lose your soul. On another day, Jesus was talking very clearly about what this means to lose your soul, what this means to be rich in God, and used it with another little parable. This time the parable goes like this, Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, at first glance, if you just read that, it almost sounds like, oh, so Jesus is telling a story saying that I can buy my salvation. I can buy my way to heaven. I just have to go sell everything I have and then bring it back, and and that's what it is. No, this is not a story and not a parable about buying salvation. This is another way of Jesus talking about what it means to be rich toward God. We can't buy our salvation. We can't earn our way into heaven by the things that we do with our money. I read something this week about a man who dies and goes and Peter meets him at the gate. And the conversation goes like this. Peter says, well, here's how it works. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I'll give you a certain number of points for each item, depending on how good that item was. And when you reach 100 points, then you get in. The man kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, okay. First thing, he said, I was married to the same woman for 50 years, and I've always been faithful to my wife. Peter says, all right, that's good. That's worth three points. Man, it's three points. Are you kidding me? God, man, that's, that's kind of rough. But he goes on. He says, well, I attended church all of my life. I, I gave my tithe every month, and I, I served on several different committees. Peter says, fantastic. That's really good. That is worth one point. One point, the man says, you got to be kidding me. But he kept going. He says, well, I started a soup kitchen, and I've always volunteered in my city at the homeless shelter. Peter says, that's good, too. Two more points. Good job. Two points, the man says. Look, Peter, at this point, there's no way I'm ever going to get into heaven except by the grace of God. Bingo, Peter says, 100 points. Come on in. You see, we can't earn our way into heaven with the things that we do with our money. We can't buy our way into heaven. But listen again to this little story that Jesus gives. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. See, the picture here is this that this man found this treasure. And when you see the treasure of salvation for what it truly is, you will not want to be distracted from that treasure. You will not want anything to hinder you from that treasure. This man discovered that he had found the treasure. John Bloom writes this, 15 minutes before this man's discovery in the field, the thought of selling all that he owned to buy it wouldn't have even crossed his mind. And even if it had, it would have seemed ludicrous to him. 
But 15 minutes later, after finding the treasure, he was off to do it with joy. What was it that made the difference? It was the treasure that made the difference. This man suddenly found something that transformed his whole outlook on life. The treasure restructured his values and his priorities. It altered his goals. This treasure revolutionized this man. See, that's the thing about riches. It's not that they're bad. But being rich toward God means that God is your greatest rich. He is what you treasure the most. John Bloom goes on to say this. Eternal life is more about a person than a place. What will make the kingdom of heaven so heavenly to us will not be the glorious phenomena of a new creation or the rich rewards we will receive as inexpressibly wonderful as they will be. Now he says the heaven of the age to come, the treasure of treasures, will be God himself. Knowing and being with the one from whom all blessings flow. See, this man didn't find this treasure and bury it and then go sell everything he had and then go back and buy the treasure and keep it buried. See, that treasure, once it was his, it became his life. It defined his life. It defined his joy. It defined his love. Everything about that treasure was everything about who he was. So when Jesus tells this little story about the rich farmer and his big barns, and when he talks about what it means to be rich toward God, he's not just telling a story. He's kind of asking a question. He's kind of asking the questions to me and, and to you. Hey, are you rich toward God? Are you rich toward God? Just take a look at your heart. Take a look at your normal attitudes, your normal customs, your, your normal habits. That's the way Jesus taught us, the way Jesus asked questions. Are you really rich toward God? Is God himself your greatest treasure? Philip Ryken says this about what it means to be rich toward God. I am rich toward God when his glory is my highest goal, when his worship is my deepest joy, and when his fellowship is my greatest satisfaction. I am rich toward God when I offer all my abilities for his work without reserve. I am rich toward God when I decide there are some things I can live without so that I will have more to give to people who do not even have the gospel. <laughs> There's a Christmas message, right? Look for what you can do without this Christmas so that you can give more. John Piper says this about being rich toward God. Being rich toward God means moving toward God as our riches and using earthly riches to show how much you value God. That what we have, we, we use to show the fame and the, the worth of God himself. Piper goes on to say this, Jesus considered money hazardous. It lures us out of love for God. It lures us away from treasuring God. See, that's, that's the rub here. See, the whole notion of what our earthly riches can do is to draw us away from God. And that's not just at Christmas, right? See, it can happen at Christmas, but it can happen all the other days of the year. And underneath the tinsel and underneath the mistletoe and underneath the lights, underneath the great deals at the mall, 
underneath the last exams at school for the end of the semester, underneath the projects at work, underneath the renovations at the house, underneath the new tires for the car, underneath all the other stuff that is normally going on in our life, we might get lured away from God and not even know it. We might be halfway to the South Pole and not even know that we are walking away from our true north, God himself. Jesus is not casually giving this story. Jesus doesn't casually talk about riches because he knows that although they are not evil in and of themselves, they can pull us and lure us away from God. The psalmist said this, Psalm 73, verse 28, The nearness of God is my good. I love that passage. Being near to God, that's, that's what's good for me. And I want you to know this doesn't always come natural for us, okay? We, we have to work a little bit at drawing near to God because we might be drawn to thousands of other things on any given day. And so we have to work hard. We have to pray hard. We have to enjoy God's Word. And at this time of year, maybe all the rest of the time of year, we, we have to sing to ourselves over and over again and, and never stop making sure these words are not swimming around in our mind. Be near me. Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. That's not a Christmas carol. That's an everyday carol. Jesus, please be near me. Please be close by my side. The grand announcement happened out in the field that night. The shepherds ran to find Jesus, and they saw Mary and Joseph, the three of them together. And then Luke writes this really interesting thing in that moment about Mary, and I love it. Luke 2, verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Can you imagine this? This, this young mom all the story that is already up until this point, all the things that she's already experienced. And then here are these smelly shepherds wandering in. How in the world they found her, she doesn't know. And they're rejoicing over her baby. And she's thinking of all that she has already heard. She's thinking of all that she's been through. The pain, the hurt, the sorrow, the difficulty with friends and family. The difficulty of the journey to Bethlehem. The difficulty of bearing a child. And all of her frustration, all of her pain, all of her weariness. And then here are these shepherds, stunned and amazed at this baby. And Mary says, yeah, I'm not going to forget this. <laughs> if she could have taken a selfie, she would have. This was a moment to capture. This was a moment to keep. It was the moment that she started maybe for the first time realizing who this baby really was. Alan Carr says this. She watched her newborn son receive worship as God, and she would never be the same. She would watch him grow strong physically, mentally, and spiritually. She would watch him heal, hear him preach, and see him suffer. Eventually, she would watch him die on a cross for the sins of humanity. Mary's life would never be the same because of her association with Jesus. 
See, that's the message of Christmas. It's not just association with Jesus. It is association through salvation with Jesus. The picture of all that we see when it comes to the wealth of this world, the picture of all that we see when it comes to the things of this earth, is that they're good, they're fine, there's nothing wrong with them until they become our treasure. On December 25th, on December 18th, on this morning and on any other morning, on any other day, the greatest and most satisfying treasure in the universe is knowing God himself. That is the true treasure. So when we sing songs about what it means to be in the presence of Jesus, when we sing carols about what it means that a, a king has now been born to us, when we see these beautiful things in the Scripture, they're all pointing us to one thing. Do everything you can to be near to Jesus. Because He is the greatest wealth. And being rich toward God means being in and with and near Jesus.